scripture reading is from the book of Esther. We begin reading in chapter 5, verse 9, and we'll read to verse 14 of chapter 6, the, the entire part of chapter 6. After Second Chronicles, we have Ezra, also a historical book, and then Nehemiah, and then Esther. Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. And where we begin reading, um, Esther has already had the first part of the banquet, the first banquet that she invited the king and Haman. There will still be the second banquet. But in verse 9, we find Haman very satisfied with the honor that he's been receiving. Esther 5, beginning in verse 9. Then went Haman forth that day, joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them, of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him. And now he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, Moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him. Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. And he caused the gallows to be made. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king, to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. 
And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback throughout the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste. And take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning, and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men, and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him shall surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. May God bless the reading of his word and the further preaching as well. Let us come consider um, a great portion of this book in this sermon I know it would be a lot to ask if you remember what the very first sermon of this year was in New Year's Day um, service. We looked at Luke 11. And upon considering that, that narrative, that, that, that parable about the man who incessantly knocked at his neighbor's door... Because he needed bread, he had visitors, and he kept on knocking, and he did not give up. And as much as his neighbor did not want to come and answer, he kept on pleading. And you'll remember that what what pressed him on and what was the great motivator of his pleading and knocking was that he had nothing. And the theme of the sermon on that occasion was the power of nothing. His nothingness drove him to ask, to seek, and to knock. The Lord Jesus was with that parable teaching exactly that, how we are not to give up and we are to keep pleading, and the Lord will not be like someone who is unwilling, but He will give what we need in due time. Even at the end of that whole little narrative, Jesus said, even the Holy Spirit, He will give that which is the greatest gift If only we acknowledged we have nothing. He gives everything. And we saw that in that occasion. And and today, as it is the last sermon of the year, um, I thought it would be a, a wonderful exercise to see the other side. See, as pertains to us, the greatest motivator to go to God for all we need is to acknowledge our nothingness. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves alive. We do not have the strength to to cleanse ourselves from sins. 
When I say nothing, I'm not meaning in terms of essence. We have the image of God, and that is everything. But I'm speaking in terms of our ability. Even if we speak in terms of, but it is my money that is giving me home, a home, and it is my ability that's giving me a job. Yes, but God gave you that ability. If He were to take away everything He gave you, we are nothing. We have nothing. So as pertains to us, our nothingness is a great motivator to go to God. But as pertains to God, His providence, His sovereignty, His greatness is the great motivator to go to God. So see how it happens is in acknowledging our nothingness, we give up going to ourselves or even going to others who are like us, human. But when we think of the power of God's providence, that is the great motivator that causes us to go to God, to trust in Him. With nothing... We go to God who is everything, for everything. And this is a wonderful book that helps us understand something of the majestic providence of God, the book of Esther. Before we even go to it immediately, I just want to bring a few verses. God's word is replete with the reality of of showing forth God in His sovereign majesty. Sovereignty is his power, and then providence is how he uses his providence to to rule upon this earth. That's why we're speaking of the power of his providence. Look at Job 11, verses 7 through 9. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty into perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Job 22, verse 12. Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold, the height of the stars, how high they are. In Job 5, verse 9, we read that God does great things and unsearchable. We, we cannot approach the end of everything he does or to understand it marvelous things without number of of the stars in the cosmos in isaiah 40 verse 26 we read lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number he calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might for that he is strong in power not not one faileth and we turn to Daniel chapter 4, 35. He speaks of this very greatness of God, this very majesty of His providence, the unsearchableness of His nature is even what ends up rendering us as nothing. See, the, the nothingness of our reality in and of ourselves, I'm always speaking, in our nature compared to God and His majesty. See, see, again, we look at His power and His majesty, and that renders us as nothing. Look at Daniel 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? And it's in this way that we are as nothing. There is God with His perfect will, with His providence. Everything is in place. And here am I in this world, and, and I'm not liking that, that maybe it's raining today. 
And see, in, in the whole great um, um, dimension of things, my little disagreement is absolutely nothing. And this is why it's so vain for us to complain about the weather. Who are we? We are, we, we are supposing to be wiser than the God who is giving perhaps more rain than a place can take, but it is the sovereign God who is decreeing that. See, we should look at that and wonder and worship. And yes, we can pray for help and protection if there will be people suffering under a heavy providence, but complain? We're not understanding the nothingness element of our nature. But let us then see um, how we will derive so much comfort and even so much praise as we focus upon the reality of the power of God's providence. So in our first point, we will see the purpose of everything, the reality that every single event in life and, and, and often the things that are good, we don't really need to see if there's a purpose. But yes, the things that are bad, the things that we don't understand, the things that make us uncomfortable, every single one of those events, there's a purpose in them. And then secondly and thirdly, what will be, it's like the purpose of, of I'm saying that there's always a purpose. What are these purposes? So secondly, we'll look at the comfort of every trusting heart. And thirdly, the praise of every grateful heart. Because those are the two purposes that we know. We look at things, we might not like it. But if we understand it right, it will comfort you. And God will be glorified. And that's, of course, always the climactic purpose of everything. The glory of God. So first, the purpose in everything. And what what I mean to do here is give in a way a, a summary form the, the history in the book of Esther. We, 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 I'm sure you have read through this book. Sometimes we probably forget when the first banquet and the second happened and, and what happened to Haman. Was it in between or after? Those things might be a little confusing. But the reason I do this is I, I want to go through the events where every, in essence, every phrase I am saying is one key moment that had it gone in a different direction, it could have been a whole different predicament. But God used each and every one of these for the end of protecting and preserving His people. And again, that gave them comfort, and that gave God glory. Everyone who reads the book of Esther has to acknowledge this is a glorious God. And see, the people at the end of the book are comforted. This is what I mean about comfort and God's glory. So the first thing is that the king, he desired Vashti, his wife, to parade before the men in his own banquet. She was having her own. He had his. He requested her to parade. The second event, Vashti said no. That is consequential. See, Esther wouldn't have even been in the picture if she hadn't refused the request of the king. The third event was the king's counselors warned him against the the, the refusal of Vashti. They, They warned that he should reprimand her harshly. The fourth event, the king agreed. He agreed and he divorced her. 
That was a decision he took. And then the king's counselors gave the king an idea to have a beauty pageant, in essence, for him to choose the next queen. And then again, we have to say the king accepted, the king agreed. See, each and every one of those events had to do with desires of the heart, using the wisdom of what man could consider. He had these wise men. Decisions are being made. Um, Feelings are being expressed. Number six, the king accepts the idea. So then seven is when Esther comes into the picture because since she is a young cousin to Mordecai, and she had been adopted by him. She, she's actually a cousin to Mordecai, but he was older. He was like a father figure to her. And Mordecai was a Jew who had chosen to remain in Shushan, which was now the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's part of the whole equation as well. And it happened even years before perhaps um, all of these events with the queen um, of Ahasuerus. The eighth event, Esther is chosen. She's there in the surrounding. Women are being chosen to be considered for this pageant. Esther is chosen to be considered. But that event is connected to one very important event. She is favored by Haggai, who's the keeper of the women. That gave her, as it were, one of the wisest persons to give her counsel. Esther then is chosen by King Ahasuerus to be his new queen. Then the event where Big Shan and Teresh planned to murder the king. And it so happened that Mordecai heard of this event. He heard of this attempt. So he tells Esther. Um, and Esther tells the, queen, the king in Mordecai's name. The two men are found. It is considered. They see it to be true. They are executed. Haman the Agagite was promoted by the king. All the king's servants now bow to this Haman, but not Mordecai. Haman noticed that he doesn't bow, and he became furious. And Haman learned that Mordecai was a Jew, and so he conspired to have all the Jews executed on a certain day. And with that in mind, he goes to the king, gives him the idea of executing a group of people. He does not tell the king who they are, but he convinces the king that they are no good for the empire. They need to be killed on a certain given day. Again, the king agreed with the decree. And he gave full permission for this to go throughout the whole Medo-Persian Empire. And you have to remember here that the Medo-Persian Empire went as far as the area of India today and Ethiopia and everything in between, including Israel. So even God's people who had returned and had been blessed with the building of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls. And remember that as we read Nehemiah and we read um, Ezra, we hear of how those neighbors were always doing what they could to stop the building of the temple, to stop the building of the wall. Can you imagine when they saw this law from Haman, thinking it came from Ahasuerus with a full blessing of killing the Jewish people. They were so full of excitement that they could have what they've been yearning for for many years. So that law goes goes to the whole empire. Mordecai pleads with Esther for her help. 
And Esther reveals her fear. If you open in chapter 4, this is very important because we have here a, a glimpse of the, of the reality of God's providence. In chapter 4, verse 11, she's explaining to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's providence do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, and certainly a queen, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called there, uh, called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall to- hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. So that is her dilemma. And she needs to deal with that reality. Mordecai, she reveals her fear. Mordecai reveals his trust. Look at verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? This, this is the key verse of the whole book of Esther. This is where we find the providence of God without the word providence of God, or even so much as the word God. You probably have heard that about the book of Esther, where we do not find the name of God anywhere, but yet we find Him behind everything. He is giving Mordecai this Strength to believe that God will come to their help. And who knows, Esther, that you are here for such a time as this. These are, this is the vocabulary of those who believe in the providence of God. Well, Esther then calls for those three days of fasting. Even there, you see an element of, of availing, as it were, because we don't rear the word prayer, but we know that it was a day for prayer and fasting, because fasting never happened for its own sake. Prayer and fasting always worked together. And so he asked for those three days. Esther calls for these three days. She appears before the king. And he extends the golden scepter. See, this is what, what, what I want us to consider. So she appears before the king, but he could have chosen not to extend the scepter. But he didn't. See, this is God's providence. Here's a king who could have killed her, but he didn't. But yes, God is using the very heart of this king who perhaps had a certain compassion on her. But who's the one behind all of this to make it all go in the direction that will be to protect his people? So here's a man who is an emperor, and yet God is the one giving him good thoughts and good intentions so that he would accept um, what Esther has to say. So she pleads. She appears before the king, and what she pleads is for an appearance. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet. And again, he accepts. At the banquet, when the king asks her requests, she invites him to the second banquet. And we, we can even imagine that in those three days of prayer, these thoughts came to her mind, or maybe God wrote, spoke directly to her. We don't know, but God definitely gave her wisdom because having a time to wait was also part of how this was a blessing to be worked out. 
Haman goes home, and this is where we read. He is so honored that he went to a banquet, just he and the queen and, and the king that the queen prepared. He tells his family about his great honor, but he also speaks of Mordecai's defiance. Then they give him the idea to build a gallows and ask the next day for Mordecai's execution. Here are evil people giving evil desire, evil ideas to an evil man. And it's very easy to see how he accepts those evil ideas. It goes right in with where his heart is. That night, while the gallows are being constructed, boys and girls, you know, you're to hear right now in your, in your imagination, hear, hear those hammers and nails to build the gallows. But we don't know how far away in a distance there's a king who cannot sleep. It's as if those hammering of the nails metaphorically are keeping that king awake. I'm not saying he heard the noise, but see again, God in his providence is keeping a king awake. He asks that evening for the book of the records of his kingdom. They read in those records, the portion that spoke of Mordecai's loyal warning about the attempted murder. He asks those men, um, was honor given to Mordecai? What was the honor given to him? There's nothing rec- recorded regarding honor. Uh, honor. So they answered, there, there's, nothing was done for him. It's morning. And Haman is so desirous to make his petition to kill Mordecai. At the very instant that the king's heart is instant, insistent with an idea to honor Mordecai. This is perhaps the moment in the book of Esther that we see the most poignant way God's providence can work. One man planning another man's death Another man planning the same man's honor. Haman wants to kill Mordecai and built an execution place for it. The king wants to honor Mordecai. And he asks who is there. His servants tell him Haman is here. So Haman comes with a request. The king doesn't ask, what is your request? He begins with his own request, and he says to Haman, What should the king do to the man that he seeks to honor? And even here you see the providence of God in the imaginations of Haman. But beloved, this is what I want you to see. God is never the one instigating any evil. All he has to do is allow Haman to be Haman. And Haman thinks, who else could the king want to honor but me? So the very thought that Haman had was part of the providence of God. But this is how you need to understand it. Again, God did not put that thought in Haman because that's pride. And God never tempts anyone to sin. But you and I can understand this Haman by now. All that God had to do was take his hands of grace away and Haman could only think of Haman. 
And so he thinks he wants to honor me. So this, this is what I would do, king. And he said to give the royal apparel and the royal crown and the, and the royal horse, put him on it, and then get the king's most honorable man and have him be the one parading, that thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king liked the idea and appointed Haman, because he is the most noble man, to be the one to honor Mordecai. He does it. You read the account. He returns home, humiliated, mourning with his head covered. And he is summoned that very evening to the second banquet. See how much happened between one and second banquet. At the banquet, the king asks now Esther for the third time what her request is. And for the third time, he says, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she reveals... Haman's wicked intent to kill her people, the Jews. That moment Haman is arrested and he is executed on the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Mordecai and Esther are allowed to make that decree whereby the Jews would on that day be able to protect themselves. They couldn't change that law, but they could add a law. And the law would be that on that day that the Jews are to be persecuted, it is a day that they can defend themselves. And from that day, you can imagine what happened. Uh, The peoples of the land acknowledged on whose side the king was. And and we even read that many of the Jews, many who were not Jews, they feared the Jews and became Jews themselves. And in chapter 9, verse 1, we we read um, that the Jews had rule of them that hated them. It turned all around. It wasn't those who hated who had the happy day. It was the Jews who were hated who had the upper hand. In all of this account, there at least, and there are probably more if we count a lot of intricacies, but in this summary that I gave you, beloved, there's around 45 turns of events, twists, and happenings and choices that are made. And see, at every one, decisions are being made. Attitudes were being formed. Actions were being taken. Desires were being revealed. And all of them contributed to the preservation of God's people. And and the main thing that, that we see as an application here is simply this. There is purpose in every single situation in your life. You may stay an evening without sleeping. Remember the evening that Asuerus could not sleep. There was a reason. It was not pointless. It was not aimless. It was not senseless. And beloved, this is what God is saying to you. This is the power of God's providence. Everything, every event that happens in your life, in our lives combined. Sometimes it is individually that you're afflicted. Sometimes we're all afflicted corporately. And we need to understand that every single turn of events, a decision of an evil person, a decree of our government, a flat tire as you go to work, a deadline that you're not able to make, a sickness that comes and it never is in good time. There's a purpose There's a reason. 
It is not aimless. It is not meaningless. This is what we see in this story. Now let's go to our second point, the comfort of every trusting heart. Because I could say there is a purpose. I'm saying right now, but well, what is the purpose? What, what is the reason? How can that comfort me? Well, that's what it does. When, when you, to know that there's a reason, it already comforts. But in, in this second point, let's go through several principles of God's providence where we realize, and even looking at these events from the life of Esther, how they really do comfort our hearts. Look at the first point. God is powerful over seemingly mundane events. They, they are mundane. But they're actually great and big because of what they occasion. So they're really not little. They're, they're really not meaningless. They're really not insignificant. And perhaps the greatest um, example I have in, our, in my mind is a king who cannot sleep. I mean, we know what that is. We, we, have, we may have sleepless nights or you wake up because of some event. Um, maybe a phone rings in a certain time at night and it wakes you up and then from 3 o'clock on you're not able to sleep again. Something like this happened to this king. It's so, it's so um, uneventful, it seems. It's so um, mundane. It seems so little. But in many ways, and, and this is why I wanted to read even in this portion, see in verse six, um, chapter 6, verse 1, On that night could not the king sleep. And God's people were protected. Their lives were spared. See, that, that event is right there in the middle of it all. It, it, it was even very critical because this is what brought forth the reality to the king that Mordecai had not been honored. And it, it started crushing the heart of Haman when he's the one who has to do what he did. It already made the king start realizing this Haman is bad. He wanted to kill Mordecai who wanted to honor me. And Mordecai warned me against those two who wanted to kill me. So if someone wants to kill Mordecai, that man is not to be trusted. So you see how it wasn't just a little event that humbled Mordecai, uh, uh, Haman. It was an event that really prepared the king for that second banquet. When he hears his wife say who Haman is, he is ready to catch that man. Because he understands a man who's not a friend of Mordecai is not my friend either. God is powerful over seemingly mundane events. So, beloved, the application for your life, and that's for each and every one of us, right? Each and every one of us have little things that happen. Sometimes they're not even uncomfortable in themselves. Sometimes they are, but they seem little. But they are big. They are big in light of God's providence. And we need to learn to accept them. We need to learn to even look to the Lord and say, Lord, I thank Thee that I'm not able to sleep right now. Comfort me with the thought that there's a purpose even in this. And help me in the watches of the night to keep praying and keep praising and keep thinking of how I need You. How you are great. You are wonderful. It was a sleepless night that saved Thy people in the book of Esther. So there's a purpose on this sleepless night. Help me not to complain. Comfort my heart to know that thou art a God whose providence is powerful. And secondly, God is powerful over the choices people make. See, people make a choice, and sometimes 
it, it is discomfortable for you, the choice someone made. But you need to understand, God is sovereign over that. He has power over that. That decision someone is making, maybe it's a wrong decision. Maybe it hurts me in a way that, that seems very profound. But again, I need to understand, God is in control. And this will be used for my good. See, it comforts you to know. The decision does not comfort me if it's a decision that hurts me. But the thought that God's providence is over that decision will comfort me. And this is where God wants you and me to look at. And so look at Mordecai. He chose to remain in Shushan. You you can imagine how many people were upset with Mordecai. The, the Jews who remained were seen as the Jews that were cowards who did not want to go back to Israel with the hardship of rebuilding a town in the walls and to be, of course, religiously very pious to go back to our land of promise. The Jews who remained back were not seen in very good light, but God used Mordecai in the line of events to protect every Jew of the whole empire. And you see, this, this was a choice that Mordecai made. And probably many people were upset with him. And yet their lives were spared because of that choice that Mordecai made. But it took time for these people to realize this. They were probably judging Mordecai for many years. And Mordecai probably had to endure people who were judging him harshly. But if we remember, beloved, when those things are made, people make choices... It hurts you. Take comfort. God is sovereign over even the bad choices people make. And of course, over the good choices too. The king chose Esther over the women to be his queen. He he had other choices, but he chose her. That choice, of course, contributed to the good of God's people. The king chose to read from the Chronicles so that he would come across Mordecai's actions. He he could have chosen perhaps a poem to be read. Maybe he could have chosen, don't read anything, just play soothing music for me to sleep. But he chose to read Chronicles. It was like doing homework to find out about my kingdom. Are there things that I need to take care of? It doesn't sound like the king asked where to read, but we hear how the servants read from the event where Mordecai's actions were brought to the king's attention. They made a choice. And then Haman chose to enter the palace the very moment that the king needed the advice of how to honor Mordecai. See, all of those were choices, and God was sovereign over all those choices The third thing is that God is sovereign over the mistakes that people make. I'm not even going here yet to the sins that people make because there's some mistakes that aren't sins. They are just lack of wisdom. Maybe they may have elements of sin because of how great the mistake is. What made me think of this is the reality um, of how the king allowed Haman the freedom to establish a law. He he trusted Haman, and that was a mistake. The command that came forth was a sin, and it shows how dangerous it is to trust people that are not trustworthy. But see, trusting Haman in and of itself wasn't wasn't a a very literal sin. It, It was lack of wisdom. 
It was a weakness of this king. But see, I just want to bring the attention that God is sovereign over the mistakes of other people. And stop to think, beloved, how many mistakes people have done round about you. And maybe people, um, how, I mean, maybe you got very sad. And it bothered you. Usually when people make mistakes towards us, we get sadder than we're the one, when we're the ones who make the mistakes. But whichever way you look at it, it comforts you to know that God is sovereign over the mistakes that we make and that other people make. Let that comfort you. The next time someone makes a mistake or you make a mistake, go here. Think of God's providence, the power of God's providence. Let it comfort you. Fourthly, God is sovereign over the sins people commit. So see, we went through a, phrase, a little phase here. God is sovereign over the choices. There, there can be good choices and bad choices. God is sovereign over the mistakes. Mistakes are always a bad thing. They're not necessarily sin. But then fourthly, God is sovereign over the sins people commit. The reason I delineate them is because some people could think, well, you know, sin, would God have anything connected with someone's sin? Yes, this is how he is connected. He is sovereign. And, and here's where we make the distinction. God never, God never coaches someone to sin. He never coerces someone to do evil. He never coaxes, co- coaxes. He never, he never gives the idea. He never suggests. Because if he were to do that, he himself would not be good and holy. Now, the verse that is clear about this is James 1, 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And you could say, well, in what way is he sovereign? He saw all these evils happening and he did nothing about it. Yeah, he, he simply allowed Haman to be Haman. And he allowed the king to be the king. And he allowed that to take its course when it served his purpose and sovereignty to protect his people. And beloved, this is what's so astonishing about it. Who of us could complain of that? Because when God is doing that, he is giving us freedom. He is giving us freedom to act within the range of our nature. So here you have a corrupt man, a a, a man who is steeped in his sin, Haman. He is totally depraved and he has freedoms to act within that range. And sometimes God stops him and doesn't allow him to kill Haman before and sometimes allows him to go on. So he marches to the king and says, I'm ready for Mordecai to die. So see, what God did was he protected Haman from such thoughts. But then he said, I'll let Haman be Haman. And Haman wants Mordecai killed. So he goes and asks. We could look at this and say, if God taking his hand promotes these sins, isn't he connected in any way? Not in any way whatsoever. Because God didn't have to give Haman the idea. God didn't have to suggest it. He just gave him freedom. And this is that irony of this reality of evil. God was good to Haman because he gave Haman freedom. Don't we look at a man who's a dictator, who forces us to do something that is bad? 
What do we say of a God who says, I will let you to your freedom? That, see, is an element of good. God only does what is good. But this only shows, beloved, the reality of our heart. When a man in his nature is given freedom, he can be as bad as a Haman or worse. And when we are better, it's because God is not giving us those freedoms because he's graciously protecting us from going in that direction. And that is also good. And you see, this is where in our hearts we are to look to this Lord, to this God, and say, Lord, do not leave me in the freedom of my nature. Change my nature to a new one. And then help me to obey and to follow you with all my heart. And that's the beauty of Christianity. When you're a Christian, beloved, you have a new heart. So now you have a new nature. And in that nature, God does give you freedom. He still protects us from from making sin and going into directions that we shouldn't. But He wants us to serve Him with a fullness of our hearts. He doesn't force us to come to church. He doesn't force us to give offerings. He doesn't force us to keep the Lord's Day. Even from the days of the law, He says, remember the Lord's Day to keep it holy. It's like an, an invitation to follow Him. Because he wants you not to be coerced, as it were, to be a child of his, but willingly and with all your heart. And because we know of our weakness and we know of our proneness to waywardness, we plead and say, Lord, help me. No, do not allow me to stay to myself. Please, that the Holy Spirit would make me follow and be obedient and be holy. And that's how we plead. But so we see God is sovereign over the choices. God is sovereign over the mistakes. He is sovereign over sins. And then sixthly, only a couple more, deliverance. Notice notice here the connections. Deliverance came closely connected with prayer. And we could also say at this point, in, in a way what I could do is bring together the first sermon of this year and this last sermon of this year and put it together. Because we have here Esther as an example of someone who looked at herself, just like that man looked at his home. There was no bread. There's a visitor. He went to knock in his neighbor's house and wouldn't stop until he got what he needed. And he told his neighbor, I have nothing. Well, look at Esther. She's saying, I- I'm going to die if I show up in front of the king. And, as, and, and Mordecai said, you might die anyway if you don't go. But who knows if you are there for such a time as this. So Esther realized she had nothing, but she had a God who would listen. So she proclaimed not one day, not, not just a few hours of prayer, and not just a whole day, not just two. And also not just three days of prayer. It was three days of prayer with fasting. And fasting, beloved, always the simplicity of fasting is this. When you need to pray so incessantly, you know your life depends on it, you have no time for food. That's the key thing about fasting. It is a heart that is so yearning for prayer because of some situation, some condition that food is just out of the question. I don't have time for it. I need to focus. I need to plead. I need to intercede. 
So she decreed three days of fasting, which meant three days of prayer. And see, this is the heart realizing I have nothing. I need a God who is everything. And so the nothingness of Esther led her to the everythingness of her God. And it is astonishing how connected with this prayer, everything rolls out into the conclusion element. Because it is following that prayer that she goes and she makes her request for the, for the banquets. The banquets are there right in between that moment where the king can't sleep and Mordecai and, and Haman has to build the gallows. And then the second um, banquet and, and everything is done. And it was prayer. Prayer connected with the deliverance. And so, beloved, let that part of the providence of God comfort you. See, when it is a providence of God that is difficult, something that really brings discomfort to the heart and affliction and mourning, like them, they, they were all mourning for these three days. But this is what could comfort them. We are praying, we are pleading, and prayer is always connected with God's deliverance. He and His providence will hear your prayer and help you and comfort you and provide what you need, even if it is that His presence will be there in that darkness that you're experiencing. And for Esther, it was the deliverance of all her people, all God's people. And then seventhly and lastly, and this is from Flavel. Um, John Flavel has a whole treatise on the providence of God. And when he's looking at Joseph, Joseph would be another portion, another sermon could be all with Joseph's life. All of those strings of events that made God save not just all of Egypt, but also all of his people because there was bread in Egypt. Well, this is a principle that um, John Flavel brings. At times, powerful means meant to destroy the church are ineffectual, while simple and weak means are rendered effectual to save the church. Think of the church of Christ itself. Like for the first 300 years, beloved, we, we need to always remember this even to appreciate what God is giving us still today. There, there are elements of persecution. But in the beginning of the church, it was all persecution. For around 300 years, there were around 10 or more cycles of persecution where the Jews and Rome used fire, wild beasts, torture, cruel mockery, confiscation of goods and property. There was exile, um, and there were churches that were burnt and property that was taken. And the church had no weapons, no strategy, no earthly governor, no army, no finances. Most were poor. Only God's providence can explain that the church grew and prospered during all those years. What, what forced the Roman Empire to end the persecution was the sheer number of Christians that had pervaded the Roman world. It was as if saying, we're going to fight against ourselves. We need to accept them. And maybe even follow their decrees. They seemed to work well. And those were very strong means, and it didn't destroy the church. But now we go to, to this very story, and we see an invitation to a banquet. And God used that to protect his people. The sleepless night of that king. The reading of government records 
Who would ever think that those measures would save a people? And, beloved, at the end of all of this, the majestic thing, of course, is that in the realm of darkness, it was Satan trying to kill the seed of the woman so that there would be no Messiah. But in God's sovereignty, he was protecting the seed of the woman. Along all those Jewish people, there were the descendants of the Lord Jesus from whom he would come. But God was protecting them through a banquet, through a sleepless night, through a beauty pageant, through a Jewish queen. And I just want to end this little portion with this little example of what happened in France in the days of the Huguenots and in a city called Béziers. Um, It was a town that was full of Huguenots and they were besieged. And in the very night that they were going to enter an attack, there was a drummer of the town who was drunk and he went back to his quarters and mistakenly he rang the alarm bells at midnight. And that alerted all of the families. They woke up and there was a surprise attack at that very moment. And it was what made them able to defend their city. And this is where we see the world can use very big tactics and it doesn't work. God will use a man who mistakenly rings a drum and it saves the whole city. And then third and lastly, so we saw the purpose of everything, the comfort of every trusting heart. Now thirdly, the praise of every grateful heart. And, and what I mean by the praise is that as we're comforted, even that comfort has a purpose. See, God does not comfort you with His providence just for the sake of comfort. We can also ask, what is my comfort for? Well, my comfort is for His glory. When I'm comforted, I will give Him thanks and I will praise Him. And that is, that is what has to happen. When we, when we see God's providence working this way in a way to give me comfort, it redounds in His glory because I will praise Him and I will worship Him. Um, look at Nehemiah 9, 6. We read this there. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all the things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. You see how Nehemiah is making the connection. Um, God is a God of providence, and, and this majesty of God, this, this greatness of God, makes it where we just echo forth in worship. And Nehemiah was also in a time of a lot of afflictions. It's like Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. So my prayer, as we look at this year and we see God's providence in in our lives in individual ways, may may the Lord comfort your hearts to see um, that there was purpose in everything, every single element of what happened this past year had a purpose may that purpose comfort your heart when you see that God was sovereign over it all and he will use whatever happened whatever transpired however much you have grown in him to glorify him 
May it be then what renders in our hearts reasons to give him thanks and to call upon his name in worship. And what a precious providence that tomorrow is our day to come back and to worship him. We have tonight to look back at this year, see his providence, let it comfort our hearts to know that he is sovereign over it all, and may our hearts be filled with worship tomorrow also as we join together twice um, to worship him. And for this last point, I just want to end with um, a rendition of a Psalter of Psalm 104, the first two stanzas and the last of, of this hymn based on Psalm 104, show this reality of the majesty of God, the comfort it brings us, and the worship that it redounds to Him. O worship the King, all glorious above. O gratefully seeing His power and His love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. O tell of his might and sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. O measureless might, unchangeable love, whom angels delight to worship above, your ransomed creation with glory ablaze, in true adoration shall sing. To your praise. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we praise thee, O Lord, for being the God of providence, for having protected thy people in those days of Esther. Lord, we thank thee for having used all of those events. In the moment they happened, They would have been mixed with tears, with mourning, with sadness. Certainly for Mordecai, it would have been tense to think of Haman's hatred over him. And then the law that came forth. Lord, we pray, help us to to apply all of these realities to our own life. We live in days, Lord, where there are own afflictions, some very personal to individual ones of us. Some are, are all of us um, going through something of the same affliction. We plead, Lord, with thee that thou would help us believe and understand that they all have a purpose, that this would comfort us as we see that they are all met in thy providence, that nothing is a mistake. There may be even sins of people but they are not outside of thy providence. It is not because thou lost control of what happened and so someone sinned, but that that sin, even though it is evil, it will be used for thy good and the good of thy people and the glory of thy name. Help us, Lord, even as a new year begins to understand this and have this heart so that this year too we may be reminded of our nothingness in ourselves and the everything that is in thee that we would understand and believe the power of thy providence and Lord even as the year comes to a close and we remember Lord those whom we love and whom thou didst in thy providence take from us We do thank Thee, Lord, for the life of Shirley Vanderstad. 
And we pray that thou would continue to comfort all those in her family who are still mourning, a mother, a grandmother, a wife. Please be, Lord, with, with all the family. We pray, Lord, also um, and thank thee, first of all, for Brother Brian Vandervreed, for the years that thou did give him to us and to his family. We pray, Lord, that thou would be with them, comforting the children, comforting Debbie, comforting sisters, relatives, brothers, and friends. Oh, Lord, we pray, please continue to comfort. We thank thee, Lord, in thy providence that these dear ones had their faith in thee and professed it and lived it. We pray, O Lord, that thou would continue to comfort those whom they have left behind. And although, Lord, Brenda Van Wingerden was not of our congregation, but so many in our congregation are still mourning her passing, we pray that thou would be with them, that thou would comfort the, the Franklin Lakes NRC, comfort the families there, comfort Lynn, her husband, and the children. We pray that thou would fill their hearts with thoughts of thy providence, that none of these events had no meaning in them. Even if they were sinful, thou art a God who is sovereign over them all, and there is a purpose. May that comfort every heart. And we pray, Lord, that thou would still use it for thy honor and glory, and that thou would continue to use it for thine honor and glory. We pray, O oh Lord, that thou would be with us at the closing of this year. We, we want to render thee thanks, Lord, for, for all the blessings of this year past, the children who have been born and baptized, the confessions of faith that have been made, the elders and deacons that have been given to us, every family, Lord, the healings that have occurred. People have gotten ill, but then healed. And we want to thank Thee, Lord. We want to acknowledge that Thou art the God of all providence. And we render Thee thanks. And we worship Thee, Lord. And it comforts our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.